Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. What do you know about co-ops? Have you ever been to one? My first memory of a co-op goes way back to when I was six. My father was way ahead of the times when it came to healthy eating, and he signed the family up to be a part of the village market. Think of it as Whole Foods before the price of food went as high as the rent does these days. The village market had an inviting environment and encouraged collaboration. Over the years, co-ops have popped up all over the country. Here in Middle Tennessee, the Southeast Center for Cooperative Development is leading the movement. Here with me now are my guests, Benny Overton and Rosemarie Henkel-Rieger, the co-directors of the SEC4CD. Benny, Rosemary, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Okay, I really appreciate you both being here. Let's get an understanding of what a co-op actually is. Rosemary, what is the proper definition of a co-op? Well, we uh, work with worker cooperatives. So worker cooperatives are for-profit businesses that are collectively owned and democratically managed by the people who work there. So owned by everyone, managed, all the decisions are made by folks. And there's a profit-sharing model in there as well, I imagine. So, Benny, tell me, what, what purpose does a cooperative business serve? Serves several purposes, uh, important purposes as well. One is to address the inequality issue, uh, income and wealth inequality are, I guess, effectively addressed through co-ops. From a macro level, you can say that co-ops bring about a greater power balance in the power dynamics between labor and capital. So it best refutes the position that labor is subordinate to capital. You know, and that's really at the root of a lot, lot of the problems we have with inequality of income as well as inequality of wealth. So co-ops refuse that position, much like labor unions do, to address the power differential and therefore bring about greater equality. Also, it addresses many of the broader needs of workers, of people, the human needs that are often not addressed at some of the other uh, more conventional type businesses or organizations. Can can a co-op be for any sort of industry or business? I mean, does that work? Any business can turn into a co-op. sure. What are, what are some of the applications of a co-op? If I had an ice cream shop and I decided to turn that into a co-op, what are the applications that are there? It's quite straightforward. It's, the only difference is that the workers are also the ones who have control of the operations. So they share in the, I guess, the management. They share in the profits or the surplus. Uh, they have a voice. It gives people a voice that you oftentimes don't have in in many settings. So it brings about involvement, the involvement of workers in constructing and and developing and uh, the operations as well as themselves. It gives people an opportunity to develop their potential, to live up to their or realize their aspirations in the organization so that they are more than just, I guess, extensions of the process or whatever the function is going on. There's been a trend in work, particularly with younger folks, called quiet quitting. Mm -hmm. And what it sounds to me that a co-op 
kind of mitigates or prevents quiet quitting because the workers are appreciated. They're invited in in every step and level of the business. What are, Rosemary, what are some other benefits that we can get, that the community gets from having co-ops operate there? Yeah, that's a good question because on the one hand, you know, they're very good for the employees who become the owners and make all the economic decisions. Uh, but for the community, there are benefits like um, having stable workplaces. So a co-op is much less likely to, um, you know, just pick up and leave like some businesses do. They go where there are better tax breaks and, mm. and things like that. So a co-op is, you know, made up and owned by community members and is like an anchor in the community um, because of that, too, it creates community wealth because the people who are now um, who are now getting part of the success, the financial success of the business through patronage, um, you know, that creates wealth for them. And these dollars circulate and stay in the community instead of going to outside investors or stockholders who often aren't, you know, part of our community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so stable jobs, community wealth building. Um, um, yeah, a lot of co-ops, um, you know, they're based on principles and values based. Um, and so uh, one of the principles is care for the community. And so a lot of cooperatives, you know, uh, think about how can some of the surplus that they create flow directly back into the community. And so a lot of co-ops have projects um, that that benefit the community. We have like a landscaping cooperative here in Nashville, and uh, they work with a lot of community gardens and mm-hmm. help help community gardens put in raised beds and and uh, a lot of that, like on the in their free time, or uh, you know, through their profits, add to that. As I was growing up, my father also had the family involved in community gardens, and everywhere I've lived, mm-hmm. that's been growing in popularity. Particularly places that are have uh, what we call food deserts. Mm-hmm. Community gardens are helpful there. Are there any examples of popular co-ops here that that folks may have heard about? Here in Nashville, we have, um, if you've heard of Nashville Foodscapes, that's Mm -hmm. um, this landscaping cooperative that is quite unique in that it... um, it does uh, edible landscaping, so the plants that they plant uh, bring food for people or for animals. So they uh, they have a, a niche there, and, and that's quite unique. Um, it, we have a trucking cooperative. Um, Third Eye Trucking is here in Nashville. We have Voces de Nashville. It's a Spanish language instruction cooperative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are some example of um, co-ops here. We have a bakery, uh, Plant Forward, or vegan bakery and cafe in Memphis uh, called Lulu's, um, an IT co-op in Dyersburg, um, bookstore co-op in Johnson City. So, so it's growing. Across, yeah, across the state. Quite a few of the names you mentioned have been former guests on the show. But Benny, I have a question for you. What's mm-hmm. the difference between a co-op like REI and a worker-owned co-op? REI is basically a consumer co-op. That means the uh, people who shop there are, I guess, share in the uh, the surplus 
and probably in form of discounts or some type of patronage that they receive back. Uh, a worker co-op is not only that the workers participate in the surplus, they actually are the ones who control the, the, the operations of the co-ops. So they have control and ownership of the cooperative. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the primary differences of the consumer and worker co-op. What's the history? Like, when did co-ops get started in general, the idea firm? Do, you, do either of you know you have an idea of, of the history? Yes, they've been around for a long time, a very long time. Uh, I guess more formally, they started with the Rochdale uh, pioneers in England in the 1800s. Uh, in this country, we have a rich history of co-ops, particularly in the African-American community, uh, where during many of the times when we had economic hardships or faced economic hardships, it was the co-op that brought stability to the communities. Yeah. So. Mm. so tell me more about your organization, the Southeast Center for Cooperative Development. How, what do you all do there, Betty? Everything from education to create awareness of, of the co-ops, to create awareness to the people in the community that there are an alternative to the way we've been doing things. And basically to, I guess, allow people to see that um, the world that they envision or a better world is something that we have the power to actually create. And co-ops is, is I guess, one of the ways in which we can do that. It's an avenue to that. Rosemary, how did you all, how did the Southeast Center for Cooperative Development, how did you all get started? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I moved to Nashville in 2016, and before coming here, I had heard about the work that Benny and others had been doing. They brought together, it was over 200 people, right, at a conference here in in Nashville, um, labor leaders, uh, faith leaders, community folks um, came together to um, talk about different ways of uh, of shaping the economy and how to give the the workers, the employees, the people that actually create value in the economy, give them more power. Um, and um, so I, I had heard about that um, and was excited that when I came here, um, I got to meet Benny and we decided in 2018 to start a nonprofit called the Southeast Center for Cooperative Development and uh, we've been uh, we've been um, offering educational events like a 10-week academy uh, since then so we do about two academies every year and um, right now we have about um, I think say about 55 uh, participants okay. all across uh, Tennessee, uh, several people from outside of Tennessee uh, attending. And so we do that in a hybrid format. We have some people in person, some on Zoom. And uh, I guess that's kind of our um, our star project mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. offering the academy. I don't want you to give away the entire curriculum, but what do you all teach at the academy? If someone comes in green, maybe with a couple neighbors or a couple friends and they want to start a business, teach us about co-ops. This is a vision we have. How are you all, how are you all bringing them along in the process? 
Yeah, I, it's good you mentioned that, you know, some people coming together and wanting to know because that is the foundation of a cooperative. You need to be three people or more to be a worker cooperative. So that's one of the things we ask folks uh, who want to come to the academy is that they come with at least one other team member uh, working on the same business idea. And we take them in 10 weeks, we take them through, um, you know, first thinking about their mission and vision, you know, what what's their business going to be about? And then um, through other steps, uh, Benny uh, does a great job at uh, talking about governance structure, you know, how, how will your business be governed? How will it be managed? You know, who makes what decisions? How do you make decisions? Mm-hmm. There are different ways. Um, we also um, help folks think about their business in terms of a business model canvas. Um, a lot of business schools uh, use that um, to look at different sectors that businesses are made up of. And, um, yeah, we talk about the legal aspects. We bring in outside speakers um, to talk about, you know, marketing and what you need to consider when starting a business. So it's so pretty kind of, It's pretty comprehensive. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So... You, do you all offer membership? Someone goes through the 10-week program, they go out to start their co-op. Do you mentor baby co-ops as they're growing? Yeah, we offer technical support and ongoing support and um, as well as financing. Uh, mm. So, that uh, yeah, we're very much involved in the, the ongoing operations and uh, hopefully the growth of the co-ops. Do you have any success stories? We have some that I think are quite successful, uh, and they're still young. They're still growing. Lulu's is one that, that comes to mind. Fosse's of Nashville is one. Uh, Foodscapes is, they are conversions, not really something that we help start, but we assisted in the conversion. Uh, Third Eye is one that is still determined and working toward uh, uh, stronger growth. You, so, meant, you mentioned conversion as a term. What is that necessarily? That's an existing business that uh, the owner wished to either exit the business or to uh, allow the, the workers to take ownership and control. Understand. So I understand. We help make that transition. You know, your, your organization is more than just the both of you. you oh, yeah. You may have started it. But so, so how do cooperative principles show up at the SEC 4CD? Well, it's something that we teach as well as something we try to practice. Uh, because what we're trying to do basically is create a culture that's some, it's a lot different from uh, what people are typically accustomed to. One of collaboration and cooperation and working together rather than the individualistic um, uh, approach that a lot of us mythically try to uh, emulate. Uh, you know, the, the, the strong individual type that, that's independent. You know, we try to encourage people to embrace their interdependency because we are interdependent. We are interconnected, and it's that interconnectedness that, that makes the co-op culture so different. Your model is very key to increasing economic development, as you said. What's the status of economic development here in Tennessee? Where are we at? Where do we stack against the rest of the country? There's a lot of potential in West Tennessee. 
Um, so we've um, just recently started our 10-week academy in the Brownsville, Mason, Stanton area. It's um, part, or, part or close to the new Blue Oval City site. So mm -hmm. this is where Ford Motor Company is building a is it $5.8 billion yeah. manufacturing city, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, so they'll, they'll be building uh, EV trucks there. And um, yeah, this is like in the middle of nowhere there, you know, the city is popping up and uh, there are projections that um, 27,000 jobs will eventually uh, come here to this area. And uh, so there's great economic potential there. And, and by offering our 10-week academy, um, we hope to bring to the, the people of this area, you know, a new model. Like you don't have to do business as usual. And um, as community members, they can take charge of economic development in mm -hmm. that way. I want to get more to Blue Oval City and what's happening down there later on in the show. But right now, let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion about co-ops and learn why my guests, Benny Overton and Rosemarie Hankel-Rieger, are helping to lead the movement here in Tennessee. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Colona, and this is Nashville. Today we're talking about cooperative development and how co-ops can bring economic benefits to individuals and communities that have long been underserved. Now before the break we learned about what a co-op is, how the principles of co-ops can be shared with the community, and what happened at the Southeast Center for Cooperative Development. My guests are the co-directors of the SEC 4CD, Rosemarie Hankel-Rieger and Benny Overton. Now let's learn why both of them are doing what they do. Again, thanks to both of you for being here. Really appreciate it. So tell me, why did you get into this work? Rosemarie, what drew you to the cooperative model? Well, I'd been a worker myself for many years in the biotech industry and as a teacher. Um, and then I got involved in uh, community, uh, community organizing, community engagement, worker rights advocacy, and realized that a lot of this work is fight back. Mm. Uh, and I really wanted to fight forward, wanted to be a part of creating something new and creating a new economy because the economy, it works very well for very few people. It works really well for very few people. Mm -hmm. And for the rest of us, the proverbial 99%, you could say, you know, it's not going so well. And so, you know, how can we start building something new in the shell of the old? And I think, you know, worker cooperatives are the way to go where, like I said before, the people who create value in our economy, you know, are are the owners and managers. You said something really interesting. You said you want to fight forward rather than fight back. Talk to me about that phrase and the and the philosophy behind it. Yeah, it's uh, not something I came up with, um, and I I don't know who to give credit to for that. But um, you know, I think it is time that. We think about, you know, what other ways are there to 
to shape the economy. And our current form, capitalism, you know, a, a lot of people think there is no alternative. I think that was Margaret Thatcher, right? Tina, there is no alternative. But that's not true, right? We've had different economies over the span of humanity. And uh, one of our favorite economists, Dr. Jessica Gordon Emhart, uh, calls the cooperative economy the first economy mm. um, because it does. You asked about the history um, before, and um, you know humans have cooperated ever since we've been around. Like it, I, you know, it goes uh, far back. And uh, like one of the early examples are the the irrigation systems, like in Mesopotamia, that were collectively. Um, collectively created, made, and then also uh, collectively managed. Mm -hmm. um, and so cooperation, you know, is part of humanity. That's how we interact. And so it's the natural part. So uh, uh, that's why, you know, Dr. Gordon Amhart calling it the first economy, I think, is, is very good and right on point. Benny, how'd you come to this work? It's a couple of things, actually. Uh, one was my concern about the growing inequality that we have. Uh, you know, this nation is is probably one of the most, or has the highest level of inequality of any uh, industrialized nation on earth. Um, and it's just getting worse, the inequality of wealth and the inequality of income. Uh, that was one of the driving points. And the other is, I, I guess, my experience with self-directed work groups. I had an opportunity at a Ford facility here in town to actually develop work groups throughout the uh, facility. At the time, we had about 1,200 employees. Uh, Ford was going to shut it down because of performance concerns. Uh, it's actually something that came about due to pricing pressures that they exerted on the facility. Uh, we made automotive glass windshields, so and we were selling them at relatively low prices to Ford. They were showing the profits. We were showing the losses. Mm. But because of operating concerns, uh, we petitioned for it to give the workers greater voice uh, and involvement rather than rely on the punitive approach that management often rely on. So we formed self-directed work groups, and it was a transformation that I saw in many of the workers. Uh, many of the workers who have been labeled uh, problematic, they were some of the most engaged, and most involved, and most committed workers there at the facility which led me to realize that a lot of the issue was the fact that they had input, they had ideas, they had a willingness to, to, I guess, contribute, but they were never allowed. It was never encouraged. Uh, the Fred Taylor approach was the approach that management was steeped in at the time. Fred Taylor explained that to me. He's the father of scientific management. He came around, he was an engineer, actually, at the turn of the uh, century, uh, early 1900s, late 1800s, during the Industrial Revolution, mm -hmm. who basically, through engineering, uh, advocated command and control, who said that the only need that uh, the management or the company needs to be concerned with is economic needs of the workers. So pay them, bring them in, tell them what to do, and their job is to not to take initiative, but to do what they're, they're told and do it quickly. Mm -hmm. And that was the, the management approach, basically. But 
what we are, what I have seen through the self-directed work groups was what happens when you allow the initiative of workers to be unleashed. And when you channel those initiatives into, I guess, the involvement of, of their own innovation and creativity and their willingness to, to achieve. Uh, and that really led me to want to explore that model more. And it led me to co-ops. You know, it's interesting because you, you, you talk about how you saw the attitude of workers, the behavior of workers, their approach to their own jobs change yeah. by just giving them a little bit more input, let alone, I mean, I'm not even sure, was there a salary increase in this or was it just? No, it wasn't so much the salary. I mean, we were UAW employees, so we were okay. pretty well paid. Yeah. But it was some of the other conditions that made uh, the work life, you know, somewhat difficult. So. You know, but there's so many people. I'm thinking of Amazon warehouse workers right mm -hmm. now. I'm thinking mm -hmm. of uh, Starbucks. I mean, here, even here locally, we've got some people who are uh, upset, who are baristas, who are having trouble. Yeah. There's so much worker grievance, yeah. you know, feeling like, hey, I am not valued. I will come here and do this work. I talked about quiet quitting a little bit earlier mm -hmm. in the previous segment. Mm -hmm. But if people are valued, shown that they're valued, yeah. you don't have to be in charge. Yeah. You just have to be shown value that could change something. And, you know, I'm thinking about this old model, the Fred Taylor model you mentioned, yeah. that's been around since the Industrial Revolution. Because that's been the predominant philosophy mm -hmm. for work. Mm -hmm. We've got a lot of people who are accustomed to sole proprietorships or other form of business mm -hmm. and operating in that function. The cooperative model for them could be a little bit mind bending, mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, as you were both learning this new way, how did you have to shift your thinking or behavior to adopt not only the principles of, of, of cooperative movements, but implement them? Well, and it was basically just encouraging democracy, mm. you know, because when you think about it, the the dominant, uh, predominant uh, management uh, approach was basically authoritarian and, and an autocratic. And so, I mean, we talk democracy in this country, but we seldom practice it. Mm. So this was an opportunity to actually practice democracy. And I think the benefits of that have just been uh, uh, transformative. So it was easy to to actually do it. It's easy to to practice, and easy easy to uh, advocate. Rosemary. Yeah, I, I agree with all that Benny mentioned. Um, we yeah we don't often have opportunity to practice democracy, and so there is a learning curve. So um, so worker cooperatives, you know. Um, often face uh, conflict because that's another thing that we're not taught to deal with in a constructive way. So um, so something that we're trying to offer, you know, more services in is in conflict resolution because, um, you know, owning and managing a business together um, uh, isn't easy, <laughs> to put it simply. Yeah. Um, you know, if there is no one top down to tell you, do this, do that, and, mm -hmm. you know, just be quiet and do your work. Um, so, uh, yeah, so a key thing is um, conflict resolution and to have a process for grievances. And then also uh, making making knowledge available, making education available to all the workers so that people can make good decisions, right? If they're now co-owners of a business, right, um, they need to 
be able to read financial statements and things like that mm -hmm. to make good decisions. So not everyone has to be like um, proficient in bookkeeping, but everyone, all the workers should know, you know like in general, right? And what do these numbers mean and and to help contribute by making good, sound decisions. What are some of the more common terms that come with working in the cooperative space? Like, what are some, what are some of the terms and jargon, and what do they mean? I guess commonly we talk about collaboration, for one. Collaboration is something that we encourage because it's, it's really how decisions are made. Decentralized decision-making is something that you hear. Like, for example, mm -hmm. how can decentralized decision-making be something that benefits? Because sometimes when it's centralized decisions, one person makes a decision, they're making it pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And we can move on, particularly in crisis situations. Is having a decentralized decision-making process, is that potentially harmful, particularly in a crisis situation? Is, is it important to have an expedited decision-making process within a co-op? Well, see, the, the, the cooperative have the liberty to determine in what situation will they do something more deliberative and in what situation will they delegate that uh, decision-making authority. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that one person decides. That's something that together they decide, okay. And they understand that there's situations where you may need to make decisions pretty rapidly. There's other situations where you need, for the sake of cohesiveness, and because it impacts everyone, everyone should have some input. So there's time for consensus, and there's time for, uh, say, a simple majority rule. There's time for, I mean, there's various forms of, of practicing democracy. And that's part of what we teach them, the various forms, when it's appropriate to uh, go with something more consensual, or when it's appropriate to go with something uh, where you delegate the, the decision-making to someone. You've had people come to your academy because they're curious. I'm wondering, have you ever met someone who just couldn't get their head around it? Like who it took some time to really get them to understand how the cooperative model could be so beneficial? Have either of you had experience trying to convince somebody really how good this could be? Rosemary? Uh, yes. People have left the the academy because... Uh, yeah, it just wasn't their thing. They couldn't, you know, mm. they didn't agree with kind of the, the bigger vision, too, of needing to shift the economy. So, yeah, we've run into that. Yeah, we do have, you know, people um, of all shades who, you know, some get it right right away and think this is great. And, yeah, others struggle more more with it, um, even within the co-ops that are founded um, you know, people, uh, some people leave, you know, because, yeah, it, in practice, it was different than what mm. they expected. So, um, so we do see that. So it's not, I'm sorry to be cliche, it's not a one size fits all process. Oh, no. Oh, no. And it, so it, every group really has to find their way to yeah. be within a co-op. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we tell them that if you've seen one co-op, you've seen one co-op. Uh -huh. Because it, it's something that, that's shaped by the members, you know, through their democratic processes. It's something that's shaped by them to fit them. That makes a lot of sense. Now, you know, there's another term that my producer told me called the solidarity economy. What's that? That's recognizing, uh, recognizing that we are connected and recognizing that when we act and work to satisfy the need of the larger community. 
Uh, that's solidarity. And that's, I think, naturally, this is, it's more inherent in our nature than the individualistic approach. You know, but the individualistic approach is rather American, you know? Yeah. The, there's the the trope of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Which is mythical. Mythical, a total myth. And then if you look on just simple social media platforms, it's a lot of people, I am doing this, I am doing this. Now, there are those who work with others, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of, everyone is the star of their own movie here in this country. What do we need societally to shift so we can open up our minds to this new paradigm of what you all are bringing with cooperative movements and to see the potential economic benefits? How can we get a lot of people thinking this way to shift their thinking? One thing is, you know, being more democratic in, in the sense of, you know, being involved in decision making that directly impacts our lives. And so, uh, you know, there are experiments like here in Nashville, too, um, on participatory budgeting where, mm -hmm. you know, uh, people in the community um, get a chunk of money to and uh, think about like what what could they use this money for in their community? You know, is it to build sidewalks or is it would it be for a new playground or what does the community need? And, you know, how can how could this uh, how could these funds help the community meet their needs? So they're. Um, uh, there are things like that. That's part of the solidarity economy, too, is to think about, you know, how can we meet our needs and meet everyone's needs and not mm. just, um, you know, a very few people at the very top. Um, but, yeah, how can we create um, an economy and a world where everyone's needs are met? It, I'm sure it can apply to more it can apply to greater places outside of a business maybe like faith organizations or housing as well mm -hmm. yeah sure. um and we work with faith communities with churches um if you go to our website um we have a toolkit there that we created about two three years ago with um local faith leaders and uh and labor leaders um together we we thought about like um, what could what could we put together for people of faith to um, to become more engaged and more interested in shaping the economy and becoming more interested in uh, worker cooperatives. So uh, we have a, a toolkit for that. Um, we've been working with the uh, Wenland Cook Program in Religion and Justice at Vanderbilt, um, and they've helped us connect with. Um, faith leaders and uh, people of faith all around the country uh, who are interested in thinking about a bigger solidarity economy that's based on on uh, faith values and cooperative values. So, mm. um, How does that show up in housing? Well, what we have done with housing is encourage the faith community to uh, get involved directly. Uh, because, you know, the, a lot of the religious organizations have property that they're not using fully. And so we asked them to consider repurposing some of those assets. And given the dire need for housing, affordable housing here, that's a good area for, for them to explore. And so we had a conference uh, a year ago, a little over a year ago, in which we just wanted to make the churches aware of the impact they could have through housing, particularly in one of the models that we are particularly interested in helping to promote 
It's the limited equity, uh, community land trust, limited equity model that will basically take property out of the speculative market so that they're no longer subjected to the the upward pressures of speculation, uh, developers uh, who are interested in the short-term gain, uh, and they are made more permanently affordable. Mm. So that's what we're trying to encourage the, the faith community. You know, it comes up to me like what you both are saying is the antithesis of selfishness. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but yeah. I, I really don't mean to harp on Americans, but we're pretty selfish. Oh, yeah. We have a real oh, yeah. selfish society. So what's it going to take to really get this message drilled in to a bunch of Americans who have not even thought, who haven't given one second to think this way? Well, we've been so indoctrinated into this individualistic thing. But Abraham Maslow was a psychologist who hypothesized or theorized about the uh, levels of needs that we have, the hierarchy of needs that started with our basic physiological needs and it went all the way up to uh, the need to actualize our aspirations or to realize our full potential. In his latter years, he determined or he concluded that there's another level of need that comes with our growth and development as human beings. And it's called uh, the need for self-transcendence, in which we start to, our consciousness grows beyond our our selfish image or self-image. And we see our interconnectedness. We see that we are really a part of each other's lives and that what impacts us impacts others, impacts community, impacts the planet, and it's all interrelated. And we see that now in the climate change, mm-hmm. what's happening. Mm-hmm. We see that now in the conditions of, of the people who, for the most part, working people who struggle. Some people have to work two or three jobs because the society for too long has championed the, the single individual who gets all, reaps all the profit and nothing's thought of it. You know, like the Amazons or the, the uh, Elon Musk mm-hmm. that has billions upon billions of dollars that they couldn't possibly put to good use while the majority of people struggle. Rosemary, let me ask you this. You've been in this world for quite some time now. How have your priorities changed? How, how, how has your mindset evolved around this type of work? Um, Yeah, it's been quite a shift myself because, you know, I'm part of this too and been indoctrinated, you know, was a a worker and um, didn't see myself as, you know, ever gaining any kind of ownership or decision-making power in the workplace. So so it's been a, a slow shift, you know, working with with unions, like Benny mentioned before, has been helpful to see that, you know, if workers get together, there is power, right? Because um, a lot of what workers do, right? People, um, you know, manufacturing or meeting our needs depends on people working. So, um, so people withholding their work power, you know, is uh, is quite powerful. So, so being able to be a part of that and and experience that has certainly helped. And then to go the next step of becoming, you know, worker owners and and shifting the narrative um, that way. Um, 
yeah, it has has been an interesting journey, and uh, I'm still on the making the road. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about co-ops here in Tennessee, specifically about what's going on down in the new Blue Oval City. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. This is Nashville. Benny Overton and Rosemarie Hankel Rieger are the co-directors of the Southeast Center for Cooperative Development. They've been leaders in the movement using co-ops as a driver of economic development. We just kind of learned about why they do this work. Now let's explore how co-ops are impacting Tennesseans. Benny and Rosemary, again, thanks for being here. Sure. Thanks for having us. Okay, so. Rosemary, you mentioned it a little bit for a little bit earlier in the show. Blue Oval City in West Tennessee. Break down to us what's going on over there. Yes, so Ford Motor Company has broken ground on a huge development for um, EV truck manufacturing. So they they actually named it Blue Oval City. So it's mm. uh, and I don't even know like how many square miles it is, but it's this huge development. Um, where uh, there'll be truck manufacturing and also uh, different suppliers that, um, you know, supply parts for this will be there. And so um, it's basically just popping up out of the ground and there's there's nothing around or hardly anything around it. So with um, over 5,000 workers who are coming to work for Ford and then another um, 12,000, no, yeah, workers that um, are are coming in to to you know through jobs that'll uh, that are needed to support all this. Um, there's just huge economic potential here in this part of West Tennessee, and um, uh, I guess it's been in the works for several years, but um, it's just the building started maybe last year or so, and. Um, yeah, and we're down there um, to help people um, realize that there are other models uh, for economic development and hope they can take advantage of, of the great potential. You know, every everything's needed there from housing to laundromats, restaurants, you know, mm. any kind of service uh, you name, it, it's needed. So it's a prime opportunity for groups of people. Mm-hmm who have lived in the area, haven't had much development, to kind of come and set something up, not necessarily be a worker for someone, mm-hmm. but be in a co-op to develop and to keep those community dollars in that neighborhood, like you were saying earlier, Rosemary. Exactly. I like that. Now, have we seen this before here in Tennessee? We've seen that the impact, the economic impact of something like that happening. We saw that at Spring Hill when the General Motors built a facility there. And we saw the huge economic impact that had. Well, and I want to add that part of what we want to do at the Southeast Center, part of our mission is to bring economic inclusion to those who have been excluded. So what we have in West Tennessee in the uh, Brownsville, Staten, Mason area of the Blue Oval City area 
is a, a community that's is majority minority uh, communities for the most part who haven't had to any uh, great degree uh, opportunities to have full inclusion in the community and in the benefits of economic development. And so this was an opportunity, uh, just more uh, an obligation, I think, given the billions of dollars that's going to be flowing through those communities to make sure that that, that, that revenue do, it does more than just flow through. We want to see it circulate. And that's how the people of the community benefit, by having that money circulate and uplift lives, not just the ones who work for Ford or some of the suppliers, but for the, the community in general. Mm. And when I was younger, activists, I grew up in the suburbs of Baltimore, mm -hmm. activists would talk about how the optimum thing is for the dollar to circulate within the community That's 20 right. times before right. it leaves. That's right. Sounds like what you all are doing helps that. So you mentioned that you've been down there working with people. How are you helping them prepare? Like, what are you teaching? And what are some of the ideas folks have for their co-ops in West Tennessee? And this is relatively, we just basically getting started. We've done some introductory things back in the fall. Uh, people are just getting to know us, getting to know more about co-ops. We bring in that awareness. Uh, we had some introductory classes. And now we're actually working with those who are the more or less early adopters to show them just what type of businesses are. A lot of them come with business ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, I think what's new to them is the collective uh, nature of the co-ops so that they can have more of a, uh, I, I guess, be more community-minded and be more aware of the impact that they could have on the community rather than just someone trying to become the next Bill Gates. I mean, that's not what we're doing. Mm. Question for you. Pay me a picture of Tennessee in 15 years. Where do you think we will be? And also, where would you like us to be as far as economic development, particularly for those who've been underserved for so long? I think, um, all right, what I'd like to see is that, of course, there are more worker cooperatives, that the model spreads and that, you know, our work helps to, uh, to initiate that. Um, and that there are uh, worker cooperatives in, in many different sectors all across Tennessee. Um, one thing that we try and do in our model is, um, is create ecosystems of cooperatives. So it's not just a co-op here and a co-op there, but that we think about, you know, what businesses can, how businesses can support each other. So, uh, for example, you know, if you had a bookkeeping cooperative, you know, all the other co-ops need bookkeeping services. So there's a way to interact um, with yeah. each other. Um, uh, perhaps maybe even in a circular fashion that we can help create a kind of circular economy where the um, the refuse uh, of products that are being made can be used by another co-op. We have a great example of friends in, in North Carolina who do that in a uh, circular fashion in the textile industry and upholstery. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so that's a vision uh, we have um, 
that it can be, you know, bigger and that, 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 like Benny mentioned, the interconnectedness that we think about creating new businesses in this interconnected and kind of ecosystem fashion. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's what, what I'd like to see in 15 years or sooner. (laughs) A lot sooner, I imagine. (laughs) Benny, what's your vision for the next 15 years? Uh, Very similar. Uh, Much greater, I guess, acceptance and and embrace of uh, cooperative living, uh, collaboration, uh, I guess sharing, uh, openly sharing, uh, rather than selfishly hoarding. I would love to see us make some real progress toward, I guess, eliminating uh, inequality, inequality of opportunities, inequality of of income and wealth. I think one of the things that we're doing is trying to be and trying to encourage an, an approach to to business and finances that is more non-extractive, uh, so that more people have an opportunity. Those who are at a position of disadvantage, uh, and here I'm talking about those who maybe don't have the wealth, don't have the generational wealth, don't have the credit ratings that it takes to actually uh, go out here and start businesses. Uh, and that's part of the approach that we're taking, what we call non-extractive financing, so that we could help those without regards to the, the money they have or their credit ratings or anything else. It's based strictly on the potential that their business proposal has. So that way it gives more people a, a opportunity. So I, I hope for a greater opportunity for all. Uh, and I hope that in the process, people learn to be more democratic and to embrace democracy. And, you know, I was alarmed at, at what I'm seeing in this country, period, is that people are more tolerant, seem to be tolerant of, of perhaps autocracy and a dictatorship. Uh, mm-hmm. I've actually heard and saw newscasts of people being interviews who thought that a dictator might be okay. You know, that's unreal. Uh, I, I, I understand. I agree with you how unreal and how mind-blowing that is. I think that's a little bit of laziness. People are so frustrated. They're so distraught. They just want someone to control things just so they can get up, go to work, and to do their own thing. Yeah, yeah. and be violent. Yeah. But, and I'm hoping that the, the yearning for real democracy grows. Uh, that's what I hope to see in the next 15 years. Well, you both are planting the model for real democracy to show up in the workplace. I want to thank my guests, Rosemarie Hankel-Rieger and Benny Overton. They're the co-directors of the Southeast Center for Cooperative Development. Thank you again for being here and thank you for the work that you do. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced, directed, and recorded by Magnolia McKay. She's a triple threat, y'all. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram. And tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Alona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.